have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, page 722 in the Church Bibles. And while you're turning there, let me just say that we are at the end of our studies in Mark. We began on the first Sunday of May 2017, and with a few breaks along the way, we're going to end on the final Sunday of April 2019. And this will be the 83rd sermon that I have preached from Mark's gospel. So, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. If you have a modern translation, you're going to see that little text note. Most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. We're going to address that here in just a moment. Verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form. The two of them, while they were walking in the country, these returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Interesting, isn't it? After verse 19, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. All right, let's thanks be to God for his word and let's pray. <laughs> well, Father, thank, thank you so much for carrying me all these years and sometimes dragging me through Mark's gospel. And we ask, as always, God, because the need is the same. We need you to teach us by your Spirit from this text that you will take our minds and help us to think, that you'll take our hearts, the very center of our existence, our emotions and our wills, and you will set before us, please, Father, the reality of Jesus, who he is and why he matters, and that you will take our whole lives and and turn them upside down for the sake of the gospel, which is really right side up for the Christian. God, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake, and I will just ask that you take pity on me now. This, is, this will be tough for me, and I pray that for help. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm going to begin uh, with a type of preamble, and I need to begin by saying that it honors God when we think deeply about him. Indeed, loving God with our minds when we come to the Bible is not only a commandment, but it's actually worship. And too often, when, when uh, we know too little of the Bible, we become easy prey for the lie that says, you know, effective wisdom for living in our day exists more outside the Bible than in the realm of the Bible. If you doubt that, when you have your big decisions, family, financial, you have to think how often you open the Bible to get guidance there first, first. 
before we talk to advisors and things like that. And whether that is true or not, we need to know that we need to relentlessly ask God for the grace to keep moving us forward in our Bible understanding to the place where we, we say God says it far more than, well, you know, I think. And all that we do, whether it be at the home or church or about anything. And, and one of the benefits of that, and dare I say the mental health benefits, is that it keeps our eyes on Jesus who he is, what he has done on our behalf. It is a tyranny to have ourselves on our mind all the time. It's a tyranny. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus when we read the Bible correctly and listen to it preached correctly because he is the embodiment of the word of God. He is the logos, the living divine word. And therefore the very nature of orthodox Christianity is that we will never ever come to an end in our study of Jesus. Christ is so awesome He's infinite that in our studies of him, they simply beg for more studies of him. And when done right, I promise you, it will call for worship of him. And so some of you may remember when you first began to, to date your husband or your wife, and one of, the you said, one of the things you said, I'm sure of it, is, you know, tell me everything about you. And it was beautiful. And as the years go by, you just long for those deep conversations as if to say, you just, honey, keep telling me everything about you. That is love. That is what is going on here. We're going to think deeply this morning, and God is going to tell us more about him. In fact, what you will hear in the opening part had a profound effect on me as a believer. But once I studied the things we're going to study here at the bulk of our sermon, it changed my life to another degree. It made me love God more. It made me trust the Bible more. And it made me more sure of what I was reading and how I was ordering my life and so on. So that's the preamble. I just needed you to know that. So on February 15, 2014, Jamie Coots, he was a pastor of Full Gospel Tabernacle, Middlesboro, Kentucky. He was a co-star, maybe you've seen it, National Geographic's uh, Snake Salvation. On that day, he died from a snake bite to the hand during a worship service. It was his ninth bite in 20 years. The previous eight made him sick. One, he lost his finger. The final bite, he lost his life. Now, snake, snake handling as a form of worship, believe it or not, is still practiced in a few churches, mostly in small towns in the southeastern United States, towns below the Mason-Dixon line. I actually met a long time ago a snake handler. It was a difficult thing, to be honest with you. Its roots began 100 years ago. There was an illiterate Pentecostal teacher in Tennessee, and when he looked at Mark 16, verse 18, do you see it there in your Bible? He read it as a commandment. He had the King James Version, and he heard it read to him. There was no text note there, as you have in other um, translations. So when Coots, though, this is the different guy. This is Coots, the, the guy who was on National Geographic. When he read it, they shall take up servants, and if they, shall, if they drink any deadly things, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. He read it as a command, and he applied it, though, only partial. And so Coots, Coots who was a kind of like, you know, God says it, so that settles it guy, was frankly completely wrong about what God had said there. So how do we understand that? Well, we could say, you know, that maybe he was sincere, maybe he wasn't sincere. Frankly, that's not up to, us, up to us to decide. 
No one in this room has the capacity to know a person's inward thoughts. That's 1 Corinthians 2. So we can't read people's thoughts at all. Only that person and only God. Therefore, regardless of whether he was sincere or not, sincerity has never been the test of authenticity. You could be sincerely crying or you could be sincerely shouting, but it will not protect you from the peril if you are wrong. Because Mark chapter 16, verse 18, whether it should be in the Bible or whether it should not be in the Bible, does not instruct, nor does the New Testament anywhere instruct believers to handle poisonous serpents and a worship service as proof of their faith. You want to say, what is that? And why didn't he drink the poison as well? Because that would have been another show, right? Drinking the poison. Poison. So Coote's convictions were based on a terrible misreading and thus misapplying of Mark chapter 16, verse 18. In fact, I can tell you this. I can remember as a young boy, I lived in South Florida. People in the South would say, as they read their Bible, they would say this, and I'm quoting from them. Oh, no, honey, no white girl and no black man should date or get married. That's in the Bible. And there were a few foolish people that believed that foolishness. So Cooch may have had like a zeal for God, Romans 10, 2, but he had zeal without knowledge. And his end was terribly, terribly sad. Now, Cooch's problem was an interpretation issue, not a textual issue which we have before us this morning. And as a textual issue, any person who has read the Bible could pl- completely, could justifiably ask this question. So how can I trust the Bible if there may have been add-ins? So here, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Also, John chapter 7, verse 53, all the way to verse 11 of chapter 8. That's the story of the woman who was caught in in the affair. And remember, that was the you without sin cast the the first stone story. Remember that story? By the way, I was sharing the gospel Thursday night with a young lady, and I told her that story, and I was having this sermon in the back of my mind. It's like, was it a real story? John chapter, or 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, that's also not in manu- uh, manu- manuscript, excuse me. In fact, you won't find it until the 16th century in New Testament manuscripts. So here's the question. If these verses have been added into the Bible and they maybe should not have been, how do we know that all the other things in the Bible should be there as well? That's a great question. We should not skip it. Because if you evangelize, I promise you, you will run into people who will ask you that question. So it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian? Here we go. First of all, I know you know this, but it needs to be said, the Bible just just did not fall from the sky. Honestly, that is more like the holy books of Mormonism, where the claim was there's a holy book in a cave, a place there by an angel, special plate, special glasses, Joseph Smith, the only translator. Lots of holes in that confession. So the Bible didn't fall from the sky, and all, and all of the Bible was not dictated word for word from God. So like God was over the person's shoulder saying, write this down and do this. That's more like Islam. As in 610, 610 AD, the claim was that the angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad in the cave Hurrah near Mecca, and God, little g, began to dictate to him word by word the entire Quran. Bible's not like that. Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors, 
over a 1,500-year period. It is 2 Timothy 3.16. This is important. It is God-breathed. Hold on to that God thought. 2 Peter 1.21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So inspiration is a very Trinitarian idea because you have Logos, the divine word. Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God. And then you have God breathing into these men so that they can write the word of God. And you have the Spirit carrying these men, Father, Son, and Spirit, all interested in giving us our Bible. So if you think about it, the personality of the author God inspired, God spoke through them. In some cases, God spoke to them, a few cases, and he carried them to the place where they were actually writing the very words of God. So when you read your Bible, you're picking up uh, the personal communication of God to you. Uh, do, Do you need a word from God this morning? Read your Bible. And when we read it right, and when it's preached right, as a person gives themselves to both, it has life-restoring and life-transforming goal in view. It will bring light into our dark minds and, and it will bring faith to our dead, wayward hearts. It will calm your fears. And I'm speaking of personal experience now. It will quiet you in its love. And, and this is important, it will keep killing the the anarchy in all of us where we want to fight its truth or we don't believe its truth or, and this is worse, the Bible becomes like our own personal echo chamber and we just want it to say what we think it should say. I mean, when is the last time you opened your Bible and you read it and you're like, oh, I guess I was really wrong about that. You see? And through the Bible, God tells us how much he loves us with a depth that is unimaginable. I mean, two things uh, that um, personally, as I move along in the years and read the Bible and have the privilege of studying the Bible, two things I know without a shadow of a doubt. I am a terrible sinner. But God is a profound lover of me in Christ. And if it's true for me, then it has to be true for everyone in this room that's in Christ. And so through the Bible, God tells us how much he loves us and what Christ has done in spite of us so that we might love him too and know him and serve him. And therefore the Bible, and I'll think about this, the Bible is just like our Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that it is presented as a divine book and also a human book. That's Jesus, divine and human. It's God's word, yes, but it's written by men. The word of God in the mouths of men. And so as a congregation, we affirm the authority of the Bible. We say together that what the Bible says, God says, and it, it constrains our view of everything in life. It, our, our lives are governed by, framed by, constrained by, directed by the Bible. And again, we hold this truth as a congregation. So this section in Mark, with all its difficulties, gives the Bible reader the opportunity now to go behind and below the English translation. We get to go into the history this morning of of ancient texts on which these modern texts that we have are based. So here's the short answer to the question, can we trust the Bible, as it was posed. Well, here's what you need to know. We use the same criteria to know about other texts than that we use to know that these three texts were additions. In other words, there's a science 
and it's called textual criticism. We're going to define that in just a sec. There's a science, textual criticism, that can spot these three texts, which are not part of older, ancient, biblical manuscripts, then that means that same science, in the same way, can perform that same function for all, for all the other passages. Think of it like this. You're at home and you clean your house. Your house is clean. You know what a clean house looks like. You come back, something's out of place, and you say, that doesn't belong there. How do you know that that does not belong there? Because you look back, and you know what your clean house looked like, and you know where the things go. It's kind of the same thing here. There's enough, enough textual evidence to say, okay, those verses are not in old or reliable manuscripts, or they've never been quoted by ancient church writers, only verse 19. I'll get to that in a second. So that's the short answer. Now, let me expand that and say, okay, this is what textual criticism is, and we're going to help by, be helped by Christopher Ash. He has a book, Hearing the Spirit, Knowing the Father Through the Son. Listen to what he says. Since we do not have access to any of the original manuscripts of the Bible, right? So we don't have a, the, first cop, or the first original Romans and the first original Mark. So we have, don't have access to that. This means the scholarly work of what is called textual criticism is necessary. Textual criticism is the scholarly discipline of examining all the manuscripts we do have and work back from those to the best approximation to the wording of the original manuscripts. I'm just going to read that again. Textual criticism is a scholarly discipline of examining all the manuscripts we do have and working back from those to the best approximation to the wording of the original manuscripts. He goes on, listen carefully. It is an honorable skill and one that has been well honed over the years. Thank God we have excellent and strong evidence so that it is not difficult to be confident that the vast majority of the Bible's words, of the vast majority of the Bible's words. Then he says this, no Christian doctrine depends on those parts where there are residual uncertainties. In other words, nothing about this section in Mark 16, beginning in 9, changes anything about our understanding of Jesus. There's nothing new here as long as it's properly understood. However, to help underpin this even further, let's step back and paint, if you would, a larger picture of textual criticism. So the Bibles, original languages, as most of you know, were Hebrew and Greek and little bits and pieces of Aramaic. And it was written centuries before the printing press. The printing press was invented in 1449, 1450, somewhere around there. The first original language Bible manuscripts were printed in 1454 and 55. You probably know it as the Gutenberg Bible. Johann Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press. There are 49 copies right now of his Bible. Only 21 are complete copies. By the way, about two summers ago, my son and I were actually at a museum and we saw a Gutenberg Bible. We got to look at it and all its bits and pieces. It was actually a great thrill, to be honest with you. And so that means that every document, every manuscript that was copied before 1550 were handed down by men and women making copies of the text by hand for centuries. Think about that. For centuries. 
Now, in light of that, we should ask, are the copies we have today, are they the same Greek and Hebrew text in front of us to translate English or whatever language we need? Or when we read the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, are they consistent with the original documents that God inspired when they were first written down? Because again, we don't have the original letter of Mark and Luke and John and Acts and Romans and so on. We have copies, we have bits and pieces, but the question is, okay, are they accurate? Right? Are they accurate? And here again is the science of textual criticism and why it can help us. Because textual criticism, and in fact, I was thinking about this. Don't be mad at me, but I'm like, we should tell our children, go be missionaries. Go be pastors. We should tell them also, go be textual critics. I'm not kidding. This is an honorable profession. We need these men and women to do what they're doing. Back to the sermon. Textual criticism is a branch of scholarship that specializes in comparing Greek and Hebrew text, and they work from those comparisons where there are differences between the manuscripts to discover what is actually from the original. Now, I want you to stay with me because this is important. When the Roman persecution of Christians ended in the 4th century AD, you have this massive explosion of biblical manuscripts which survived because up until then, they were being burned or banned. But after uh, Christianity became, if you would, the, the religion of Rome, you have this onslaught of manuscripts that were being able to be preserved. So two of the earliest and, and most important biblical texts that have been discovered have two names. One, and bear with me now, the first is called Codex, which is scroll, Codex Sinaiticus. And that little fancy name means it was found in Mount Sinai. So they're scientists, they have to give it a fancy name. It's dated around 350 AD, and it's a complete copy of the New Testament in one manuscript. The second is in 325 AD, which is called Codex Vaticanus. It's housed in the Vatican. And it has both the New and Old Testament in one complete manuscript. And both of those manuscripts, which are the earliest manuscripts in, and there you have it, at verse 8. And therefore, they do not have verse 9 and following. Hence the text note, as I said, that a lot of modern translations give. Now, stay with me. Now, beyond that, there are 8,000 copies of what is called the Vulgate, written, or excuse me, translated by um, Jerome. It's the Latin Bible written in the 4th century. Latin, it was the common language. Vulgate means common. And so people couldn't read Greek anymore. So uh, Jerome, thank God for Jerome, said we need to get the Bible so people can read the Bible. Common language, Latin. And he takes his... um, pen and he takes those two texts if you would and they are the primary texts a few other bits and pieces where he does his work and you have copies from 382 to 405 AD which we we have roughly about 8,000 copies of the Vulgate going back to the fourth century and one more Bible the at 350 AD there is the Syriac Bible from 460 uh, 463 to 464 AD Syriac, this is why it's important, is a dialect that's really similar to Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic when he walked the earth. And so there's lots of good that can be housed there. And so when you compare all those manuscripts, the the Sinai, Vatican, the Vulgate, and the Syriac Bible, they're all saying exactly the same thing. 
Not only this, but the early church fathers. These are the, be the guys who led the church after the apostles. This is fascinating to me. The early church fathers were doing so much writing before 325 A.D. that all the, all the um, documents that we have, manuscripts that they have, there are 32,000 quotes from the New Testament, which means you could take the early church fathers' letters and you can paste together the whole New Testament just by what they quoted. And then you have one guy, Arrhenus, who, who quotes verse 19 of Mark chapter 16. So this is what I want you to know. Just from quotes of the Bible, these leaders in the 2nd and 3rd century, writings match perfectly what the manuscripts claim was the Word of God. And I say that because it means they were all drinking from the same well. They didn't live in the same town. There was great distance between them, but they had access to copies and they were drinking from the same well. And just to buttress this up just a little bit more, we have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Roman author. And if you think about that, that is the reason we can have strong confidence that the science of textual criticism, hence if you have a worship folder, you see the subtitle, it is a servant of the Word of God. It might feel like, would you just get over this, Joe? You might feel that now. But this is why it's so important. Textual criticism is a servant of the Word of God. And just thinking on the New Testament alone, we have 5,000 plus uh, Greek little bits and pieces and manuscripts of either of the whole New Testament books or just fragments. And any scholar, Christian or not, would say that is absolutely incredible. In other words, when textual critics, when they sit down and they're trying to see, is this original... um, Language. They don't have three documents. They don't have 50 documents. They have thousands of documents to do their research from. So the gentleman named David Wallace, a textual critic, listen to what he said. New Testament scholars have an embarrassing abundance of riches compared to the data of classical Greek and Latin scholars than what they have to contend with. The average classical author literary, literary excuse me, remains no more than 20 copies Okay? So that means there's an author in the ancient world. The best we can say is we have 20 copies of his, of his writings. We have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for those average Greco-Roman authors. Not only this, but the surviving manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time he wrote. But for the New Testament, we wait just a few decades for surviving copies. In other words... When you read about Julius Caesar, we're reading from documents that are basically 900 years after his existence. So he lived, he did his thing, he died, and 900 years after his life, we have these documents, copies of what was said about him. Not so with the New Testament. When you read about Jesus in the New Testament, the earliest Gospels and Epistles were penned about 30 years after the resurrection, and we have manuscript evidence that is just 60 years past his life. There is nothing even near that in the ancient world. But here again is the clincher. Even those remains which some, you know, remains maybe perhaps for some, some uncertainty about the wording in particular and so on, they don't have any effect, as was said by, 
by Don Carson. They don't have any effect on the essential truth of the Christian message. This is what you need to know. So it's either a misspelled word or it's an added word or it's a rephrasing of some account. So the, the example that I gave was, and this is from a textual credit, you won $10 million. And so other documents would say, you all won $10 million or $10 million was won by you. It's all saying the same thing. The wording is a bit different, but the message is the same. And that happens rare, but it happens. So again, David Wallace, he's a textual critic. He was, he was doing a debate with a fellow named Bart Ehrman, who is a leading skeptic to say, no, 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 the New Testament is corrupt. It's not reliable. But this is what he said. This is Daniel. For centuries, biblical scholars have declared that no essential affirma- affirmation of Christian doctrine has been affected by these variances. Even Ehrman, he's the one that's a skeptic. He said, and I'm quoting, he has conceded this point in three debates that I've had with him. So let Don Carson sum it up for us. What is at stake is a purity of text of such substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by those variances. So this is what I want to say. Now we're done with that part, but this is what I need to say. The real question then is not do we have the original uh, words of the biblical authors. No credible scholar would dispute that fact. In fact, F.F. Bruce says we have what we have before us is 99.5, and he would even push it to 99.9% accurate of what the original authors wrote. And again, the differences are syllables or accents or just the rephrasing. And this is what I want you to know. Textual criticism started around the 18th century. As the years go by, they, they only prove that what I just said was true. It's the same thing if you think about it with the science of abortion. There was a time when people would say, oh, it's a blob. It's not a baby. And what happens over time? Who do we know? By golly, that's a baby in there. It's real. Science wins the argument for Christianity. So it's the same here. As the years go by, our assurances only grow. There's no, been no secret letter or secret this that says, ah, the Bible's bunk. Close up church, close up your Bible, and you know, go eat donuts on Sunday. No. This is real. And time keeps saying it's real. So the better question is, is the Bible uh, real? No. The better question is, do you see, now listen carefully, do you see the glory of God shining through Jesus Christ in the Bible, confirming to your own mind and to your own heart that these are the very words of God? That is the crucial question. And so when you open your Bible, do you treat it as it is, the Word of God? The Bible shows us by God's Spirit how much God loves the world. Now listen to me. It shows us how much God loves the world, how much He loves people, and why we should too. And to stay away from the Bible, because parts of it seem offensive, is us making a terrible assumption that if there is a God, He would not have any views which would upset us or be different from us. Of course He would. He's God. And when you open your Bible, do you ask God for help right from the get-go to understand it, to send it to its authority, to order your life? 
C.S. Lewis on one occasion said this, the more I resist the God of the Bible and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my heredity and my upbringing and my surroundings and natural desires. See that? And so when you have the Bible, do you see it as God's word or do you just see it as your personal echo chamber? Will you hear the sound of your own voice when you read the Bible and all your existing prejudices, because we all have them, and all our existing preferences, because we all have them, remain unexamined so that the very fabric of our life has not been changed in years. So the study of the Bible is nothing more to reinforce our own prejudices, our own bents. If you like, when we go to the Bible, it's like a tribal conference. That would be awful. Wouldn't it not be changed by God's word as the years go by? And when you go to the Bible, a person bows to Christ. And when a person meets Christ from the scriptures and bows to him, guess what happens? They keep bowing to Christ because they keep meeting Christ in the Bible. And they begin to see that he really is the most important thing in the world. Ever increasing. Let's go back to my marriage example. When you first get married, you want to know everything. And it's a poor marriage that as the years go by, you stop talking about everything. But it's a good marriage where you can set the clock at 8 o'clock and you're like 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock and 11. And it's like, babe, we need to go to bed. We've been talking all night, discovering new things about each other, which will change how I treat you and which will change the way you treat me. That's what happens when we go to the Bible. We should be so disappointed if we're not challenged in some way when we open up the Scriptures. And you know me well enough to know, I think, you know, I'm not just talking about some moral stuff. I'm talking about how we view the world and how we should love people with a Calvary-type love. The God of the Bible loves the world. So if I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to love the world too. I'm going to love people so I can see them to faith. So if you want to hear the message from God, you read your Bible. You read it. You read it. You let it speak to you every day. You listen to it being taught. You listen to it being preached. And you sing it. That's a good day. That's a good day. Okay, we just have a few minutes. And bear with me. We're just going to run through this. You see verse, verses 9 to 20? Let me just list these out. One, the, the scholars that say, you know what, this probably shouldn't be in there. One of the reasons why they say that is the vocabulary that's used is not used anywhere by Mark. That's very important to a textual critic. Two, there's 18 terms that have never been used in Mark's gospel. These are like all new interjected. It means the structure of this added section is different from Mark's normal way of writing. Three, verse 19. Do you see it there? The title, Lord Jesus. That's not appearing anywhere else in Mark's gospel except here. Four, the subject of signs and snakes and poison and all of that. You don't find that anywhere in the gospel. Not like that. However, verse 9, this is important, is a summary of Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Verse 10 is actually borrowed from John chapter 20, verse 18. Verses 12 through 14, if you read Mark 24, or excuse me, if you read Luke 24, 13 to 35, that's a summation of those two verses. Verse 15, that's Matthew 28, verse 19. That's Acts chapter 1. Go into all the world, and when you go, you go in the Spirit's power, and you're going to be his witnesses. Verse 16 is actually John chapter 20, verse 23. 
verses 17 and 18. That, the, the harder ones. That's a strange combination of some of the miraculous powers our Lord made to the disciples in Matthew 10, Mark 6, Luke 10. And that which is recorded for us in the story, uh, Acts chapter 28, around verse 3. Remember, uh, Paul was gathering wood in the island of Malta, and he went for the wood, snake bit him. Everybody said, you should die, Paul. He didn't die. Uh, The King James, I think, no ill effect. He was fine. Verse 19, that's Luke 24, 51. Verse 20 is actually, it's beautiful. It's basically a summary of Acts. Let me just read verse 20. This is what the book of Acts says in summary. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied That's in essence the book of Acts. Now, I said all that to say this. Verses 9 through 20 are some kind of summation put together after Mark 16, 8, which is from bits and pieces of either books in the Bible or from, excuse me, from other, not either, sorry about that, other books of the Bible. So here's what I want to say. If verses 9 through 20, if they should or should not be in the Bible... All of it, except for the drinking the poison, all of it you can find in other parts of the New Testament. And that means in one sense, as in the case here, it either has been preached or taught, or it will be preached and taught. So if we put our hand over verses 9 through 20, it doesn't stop the fact that it's somewhere else in the Bible, again, except for the poison, drinking the poison reference. And most New Testament scholars and critics they don't think that verses 9 through 20 are part of the original text. Now listen carefully. If you're here and you're like, I think it's part of the, part of the original text, that's fine. Because like I said, it's eventually, it's going to show up somewhere in the teaching of the Bible. Now let me close because we need to get out of here. But let me just close. Look at verse 8. So you're forced to say, let's just say, That it ends right there. When you look at verse 8, you are forced to say, the resurrection of Christ freaked these ladies out. And all of the followers of Christ are stunned. They're afraid of the fact of this resurrection. Jesus told them three times, he's going to rise from the dead. They didn't believe him. No one is standing and waiting, you know, okay, crucified. Okay, he said resurrection. Let's get ready. They are stunned. They say nothing. In the beginning, they do nothing. Why? Why? They had a revelation from God. They had encountered God. And the fact that God is God, that the, the godness of God, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the eternity of God in relationship to their frailty and to their finitude was just unleashed on them by the resurrection of Jesus. So you should say, no wonder they were afraid. Who wouldn't be? We should be surprised if they were not afraid. Here's the point. No one leaves this story except Jesus as a hero. That's the way it should be. There's no guy going, oh yeah, I got it. The resurrection. I got it. I'm the one. I'm the one. I believe. There's nobody like that. They're just stunned. Their humanness is showing. And that's the way Mark probably wanted his gospel to end. That's truth. Their reaction is unbelief. And so you're like, the only hope 
The only hope is Jesus. And just look what Jesus has done. See? Look what Jesus has done. You are God, Jesus. You are risen. I am weak. And you keep relentlessly pursuing me. And you keep pursuing others. And now, verse 19, verse 20, I should go and do the same thing that you've been doing with me all these years. I should relentlessly pursue people who have no idea about the coming judgment. They have no idea about the beauty of the gospel. They have no idea what it means to live with peace with God and to live every day in his forgiveness and his love. They don't know that. But I do. I need to tell somebody before it's too late. I sure thank you for your patience. I'm going to stay up here and ask any, try to answer any questions that you might have. Let's pray as we dismiss. Father, what a way to end Mark's gospel. And I want to thank you for the help that you gave me through the course of the week. And I want to pray in Christ's name that we'd be honest about ourselves as we come to the scriptures. And I want to pray that we would find your love dripping in every page. That we won't come to the Bible as a moralist. We won't come to the Bible as a conservative or a liberal. We would just come to the Bible as a child of the living God. We have been rescued from their sins by the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I pray that you would grow in all of us, beginning with myself, a love affair with the Bible. And that we, in loving you through that study, will become more like you. Even as we know, God, that we're very frail. And we have to battle indwelling sin every day. Oh Lord, may you bless and keep these people. May you cause your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. May you turn your face towards them, God, and give them peace. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.